Hello everyone, Mike Ludwig with Truth Out Here. Politicians across the world are bickering about how to respond to the climate crisis, and time is running out. For the next couple of episodes of this podcast, we are asking, who are the activists fighting to stop climate change today and not tomorrow? What kinds of direct action are necessary right now to keep fossil fuels in the ground and save the planet? Today we go to the Yellow Finch blockade near Elliston, Virginia, a tree sit that prevented construction of the embattled Mountain Valley Pipeline for a whopping 932 days until police finally extracted two protesters from the trees last week, and both activists were still in jail when we recorded this podcast. A tree sit, aka an aerial blockade set up in trees, is textbook nonviolent civil disobedience. Keep protesters living in trees for as long as possible, and the trees cannot be cut down until the protesters leave or are removed by police. This direct action tactic was developed years ago to oppose logging out west and is now being used to prevent construction crews from cutting down trees in the path of fossil fuel pipelines. Pipelines endanger ecosystems, but they are also strategic choke points in the climate fight. Stop a pipeline and you can prevent production of fossil fuels for decades to come. According to Appalachians Against Pipelines, the group behind the Yellow Finch blockade in Virginia, construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline is now three years behind schedule and $2.7 billion over budget. Controversial permits remain in limbo. Is a win for climate activists on the horizon? To find out, I spoke with Max and Caroline, two activists who have been supporting the Yellow Finch blockade. Max and Caroline are on the ground near the site of the tree sit, and they don't have a great internet connection. So this interview has been edited for clarity, and you might hear some background noise, like a rooster crowing in the background. Please bear with us as we take you to the front lines of the climate fight. Uh, yeah, so I guess just like starting off, uh, I'm going to be using the acronym MVP probably sometimes, uh, which stands for Mountain Valley Pipeline. Um, so MVP is a 303 mile long pipeline. Uh, with a proposed extension that goes a little bit into North Carolina uh, that is being built to transport liquefied natural gas uh, from the northwestern West Virginia, where the Marcellus and Utica shale projects are, uh, all the way down to southern Virginia. Um, It's 42 inches wide, which is huge when we're talking about pipelines. Um, and it's a joint venture project with Mountain Valley LLC and Equitrans. Equitrans? Um, would you like to Equitrans, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, and then as Max mentioned, um, it's a liquefied natural gas pipeline that is fracked gas. It's intended to um, transport an enormous amount of fracked gas from um, the shale fields in northern West Virginia. And um, just a little background on fracking, that's like a really um, environmentally devastating extraction method. Um, It's known to cause earthquakes and pollute drinking water. It's also incredibly resource intensive. It turns billions of gallons of fresh water into toxic waste, um, which is a nightmare to dispose of. So, And that's been a huge problem. I've been been reporting on fracking in the Utica and Marcellus for over 10 years now, and um, there's been a huge problem with the wastewater, but also now that there's been so much natural gas produced, they've needed places for it to go, places to sell it. So is this part of an export scheme? Um, they're, they're liquefying, which basically need, means they're like concentrating the natural gas into a liquid and then piping it. 
would this go to an export terminal somewhere? Yes, it's exactly what you said. It is gas for export because there is no domestic market for more natural gas. Um, all the domestic need is filled. Um, so this basically the intention of the MVP would be to create a huge expansion in fracking, frack way more gas, um, basically all for export. And again, the MVP mainline ends in Southern Virginia, but it is um, intended to be follow up, followed up with what did you call it? The MVP um, extension, which goes through North Carolina to export facilities there. So this is not just a campaign against a pipeline and the ecological damage that it could cause um, in its track. It's also a campaign against fracking as an extraction method because for there to be demand for fracked gas, they have to have actually pipelines to get it out of the uh, shale reserves where they're, where they're drilling. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. And I think so. On the one hand, there's the environmental threats of fracking, which MVP would cause a huge expansion in. Um, but then on the other hand, there is also the environmental threats of um, the pipeline itself and specifically the terrain it's crossing. Um, as we mentioned, um, the MVP goes through the Appalachian Mountains. It is uh the pipeline's route is incredibly um, steep and mountainous. It's really unlike the terrain of any other high pressure um, gas line of that scale. And there's really um, no way to build it through that terrain, one, without creating massive erosion problems that um, pollute like streams, um, but also without putting, um, there's no way to build it without putting um, nearby residents at risk from um, explosions or other serious accidents, which the data shows us is incredibly common with all pipeline projects. And have you found uh, people who live in the pipeline's path who have been part of the campaign to oppose it? Um, yes, I mean, absolutely. The MVP has faced um, widespread local opposition since um, it was first announced in 2014. It, um, you know, it almost seems like local opposition is near unanimous and um, hundreds of property owners refused to um, to sell the, their property rights to the MVP. And so, again, hundreds of um, properties, access to hundreds of properties had to be taken through an eminent domain court process. You know, when I tell people about eminent domain and pipelines, they almost can't believe me. You know, people in Louisiana, a kind of conservative part of the country, just could not believe that they could lose uh their property to a pipeline easement that was coming from, you know, halfway across the country. But this is regular practice is to is to use eminent domain to, to build pipelines, even if people don't want to sell out to the company. Yes, exactly. And uh, MVP has had to fall back on that a lot here um, because there was so much local opposition. And where are we with construction? Has any of it been built yet? A lot of the pipeline or some of the pipeline has been built. Uh, it's kind of unclear how much, though. Uh, I believe MVP has said that they are about 90% complete, but just from looking around and like driving past the pipeline route, you can see that's definitely not the case. Um, a large majority of, or a large portion of the pipeline has not been built yet. And how long has this campaign been going on? It's been a few years, right? And at some point, um, I'm, I imagine that tactics uh, escalated towards more direct action approach. 
Um, I'd say uh, this kind of direct action has been going on since about 2018, but there's been local resistance going on since the pipeline was first proposed in 2014. A little more to say, yeah, as Max mentioned, you know, pipe um, a direct action um, against it really began as soon as construction started in February 2018. Um, the yellow finch tree sits were not um, were not the first aerial blockades against MVP construction. There was at least um, a handful others, including tree sits and a monopod that blocked um, Mountain Valley Pipeline construction in Jefferson National Forest um, near where it's supposed to cross the Appalachian Trail. And then in addition to tree sits, monopods, aerial blockades, um, over the past couple of years, um, dozens of people um, have also stopped construction by locking themselves to um, equipment on what would be active work sites. Right. And just to kind of give a visual here, a monopod, that would be like um, that would be like three large branches or something, right? It would be like a tripod with someone sitting it. Is that what a monopod is? Um, that's, oh, that's a, a tripod. tripod. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> so what's a monopod? <laughs> It's a, a single a single pole um, that is held up with anchors. I don't yeah. know ropes holding it to the ground. I guess. So it's yeah, just a single pole that one person resides at the top of. Yeah. Gotcha. And I know that the yellow finch tree sit was going on for a long time, and um, and and so I wanted to talk about today a what what kind of a tree sit looks like for people who are unfamiliar. And also why people take this kind of direct action, which, as you pointed out earlier, can be like a choke point for fossil fuels. And if we're going to avert a climate crisis, it's only getting worse. We have to start reducing production and consumption now. So there, so this isn't, you know, this is about Appalachian ecosystems and communities, but this is also about gas that would go across the world to be consumed and, and further a reliance on it. So there's a lot of big picture stuff here. So I'm wondering if you can like, Walk us through a little bit what a tree sit looks like and what kind of support that requires uh, from people who are not necessarily in the sit and also why activists are dedicated to taking this kind of action. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll, uh, I, I can start with, uh, I guess, what a tree sit is and what it looks like and to support it. Uh, so the elephant's tree sits uh, were two aerial blockades. Um, right in the easement of the pipeline. So uh, right where the trees will be cleared, right where the pipeline would be laid um, in Elliston, Virginia, which is in Southwestern Virginia. Uh, the sitters lived on platforms about 50 feet high in the air. Um, and they were protecting some of the last trees in the path of the entire pipeline. Um, and the trees were supported by a small ground support camp who did things like help make them food, bring them supplies. And really the reason the blockade was able to go on for as long as it did because was because it had a really large amount of local community support. Uh, so people who just lived really, really close by uh, bringing nice hot meals, uh, local treats, things like that. I remember someone brought us ramps one time. 
uh, which are kind of a local delicacy here. And what are they? Let's see. Uh, ramps. Oh, ramps. Uh, the, the, it, the onions that grow in that part of the world. Yeah, sort of like a, an onion, an onion, oniony kind of grass. <laughs> yeah, I used to live in Athens, Ohio, and we ate blanched ramps a lot, and I thought they were delicious. So that's so cool that, you know, you've got this, like, local green that's growing out of the ground <laughs> coming to your tree set. Definitely. Something, something really special, especially for someone living way up in a tree. <laughs> How long were they up there? I mean, 932 days. People... Um lived in platforms, um, preventing MVP from cutting the trees they intended to, to make way for construction for 932 days. And, um, this past Tuesday and Wednesday, um, so what day is it? Almost a week ago now, um, Virginia state police, um, used a crane after 932 days, used a, um, crane to, um, remove and arrest the tree sitters. Um, and then on this past Wednesday, the patch of trees that they had been um, protecting for 932 days was cut. And to our knowledge, uh, at 932 days, the elephant tree sets were the longest continuous aerial blockade in the United States. Wow. I And I, I like how you use the words aerial blockade along with tree set, because I think a lot of people might associate a tree set with uh, a campaign to save trees or to save a forest from logging. But in this case, this was an aerial blockade, not only to save these trees from being cut down, but also to prevent pipeline construction of a major fossil fuel project. A big part of the yellow finch tree sets and other um, direct actions against the Mountain Valley pipeline um, the elephant tree sets have always emphasized that um, their protests were about more than just this one pipeline um, and actually saw a problem in um, a system in which people and the environment are exploited and abused um, for the power, profit and greed of a select few. Um, I think we see like the ugly face of this system um, all around us in um, jails and immigrant detention centers where hundreds of thousands of people are held hostage um, in wars this country wages um, across the world, um, in the ongoing genocide of indigenous people on this continent and in destructive projects. Um, such as the MVP. So I just, again, I do think it's very important to take a broad, understand the broader context of that. Um, and also to remember um, that the entire um, MVP route lies on land stolen from native people, um, such as the Monacan people, the Saponi people, the Tutelo, um, and many others. Um, and the, the MVP has not gotten permission from any of those groups um, to build the pipeline. And in building it, um, they're continuing a history of violence, exploitation, and land theft um, that really began when settlers arrived um, 500 years ago. And also, it's really worth noting that um, a number of um, local folks and impacted residents and landowners have um, been arrested, taking action um, against the pipeline as well. Um, back in, gosh, 2018, probably um, Red and Terry Minor were arrested after tree sitting for a month on their own property. Um, Becky Crabtree is a local um, West Virginia school teacher who was arrested on um, locking down to stop construction again on her own property. Um, and those are just a couple examples of the way 
um, impacted residents, local folks, and landowners have um, been involved in direct action against the Mountain Valley Pipeline? Oh, I was going to say it might be worth mentioning that I'm actually a local to this fight. I grew up, I've lived my whole life in Montgomery County, which is the same county that the elephant's tree sits were in. And I also went through all those traditional methods of resisting this pipeline. And eventually I ended up uh, being part of the ground support team for the elephant's tree sets. And just to give people a sense of what it takes to pull one of these uh, aerial blockades off, how long were individual activists up in the sit? Did, did someone do the whole 900 and some days? No, it was many different people. But it was... For it, periods it, both long and short, yes. Right, but it was one of the longest ones ever. I think that's so... I think that's... Um, I think that shows a lot about the momentum that you all have in West Virginia, that you were able to pull off such a longstanding blockade until the police finally came in and extracted the activists. What did that look like? And did the cops give you any kind of warning that this was happening? Or did you have time to strategically plan around the extraction? Um, I'd say no. Um, I mean, they had made it clear that they wanted people out of the trees, but it really all started... Um, early Tuesday morning when state police um, shut down Cove Hollow Road in Elliston, Virginia, which is the road that leads to Yellow Finch Lane where the tree sits were. Um, So they shut down the entirety of Cove Hollow Road and would not let anyone through um, without a Cove Hollow address on their ID. Um, And so they would not let um, media in to witness what was happening at the tree sits and they would not um, let legal observers with the National Lawyers Guild um, in to witness what was happening at the tree sits either. So, and both those groups, legal observers and media, really um, pushed hard and tried to negotiate for their legal right to observe what was going on. But that's kind of really how it all started was when they barred access to supporters, media, and legal observers early Tuesday morning. And brought in an enormous crane, which over the course of two days, they um, used to arrest the tree sitters. And so what happens next uh, with the campaign and how can people support you if they'd like to, uh, even if they're, whether they're in West Virginia or somewhere else? I think that's a great question. and I would love to answer that. Um, Before that, I would just really love to give um, an update on the tree sitters, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. both the tree sitters, um, Ren, who was formerly known as Robin and Aker, um, they're both currently in jail in Virginia. Um, Ren was charged with one misdemeanor and Aker was charged with two. Um, neither Ren um, nor Aker were given bail initially. Ren had a bail hearing earlier last week and was denied bail, which means the judge is trying to keep them in jail until their court date more than a month from now. Um, it, that is extremely unusual. It is absolutely out of the ordinary to hold someone without bail on one misdemeanor. Um, and that decision is clearly intended um, to punish Ren and to scare um, off future resistance to the MVP. So I just think that's a very important thing that we're facing right now is the fact that um, they're trying to hold um, the tree sitters in jail basically indefinitely for now. And um, yeah, that's a, and the intention is to, to prevent future resistance. And I just think it's important to emphasize how 
horrible it is for me to think of Ren and Aker in jail right now. Um, jail is a horrible place. It's isolating. It's demoralizing. It's depressing. Um, inmates are regularly threatened, harassed, abused, um, even killed. Um, jails and prisons are really not places fit for human beings. And it's um, a tragedy that our society forces so many people there. And um, I know getting that message out is really important to both Ren and Aker. Um, there's a beautiful statement that Ren wrote from the tree before they were arrested that is on Appalachians Against Pipelines Facebook page that addresses this issue a lot. And I'd like to just read a quote from Ren's statement. Um, they said that Ren said from the tree before they were arrested that in jail, it becomes extremely obvious who the injustice system serves and how many of the laws that are violently upheld by the state only make sense in the context of preserving capitalism and imperialism and ultimately keeping the rich and powerful in control. Laws and cops, their enforcers, are not about protecting people. They are about protecting illegitimate institutions built on stolen land and with the labor of stolen enslaved people. Um, so those are just some really powerful words that I want to get out there um, that really speak to the situation that Ren and Aker are in right now. Well, we, you know, I agree with you that incarceration and mass incarceration in general is a form of torture, right? This is this is state torture, um, and there's been laws proposed or or passed even in states across the country, particularly since the resistance to the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock, that would further criminalize resistance to fossil fuel infrastructure. We've seen that in Louisiana. We've seen that in the Dakotas. We've seen in a lot of places where fracking for oil and gas has exploded in recent years, uh, including Appalachia, where you all are involved in this pipeline fight. And um, I think that kind of goes to show how serious this is, right? Uh, people are fighting for a future on a livable planet, which, which means reducing and fighting against fossil fuels. And the industry is so... Um, is, is, is so intent on continuing to profit and continuing the status quo of producing large amounts of fossil fuels and then selling them wherever they can, even if we don't have any need for them in the United States, they are willing to throw anyone in their way in jail or prison, and they will lobby lawmakers with all of their resources to make it easier to throw people in jail or prison uh, for resistance. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's the criminalization of a movement, and this is what has happened in the United States over and over and over again in, in various movements from civil rights to indigenous rights and, and also with the environment. And I wonder if you two want to reflect on that a little bit, that um, why it was necessary to take direct action to, to create a blockade and then hold it for so long um, and why that was necessary, I think, not only for the communities that you're in but also or, or you're from, but also for the planet. And, and if you have any further reactions to like the criminalization of this type of activism, the fact that uh, pro-industry lawmakers want to make it a crime to even go near fossil fuel infrastructure um, in hopes of, of being able to put protesters in jail. Sorry, I'm just like taking a moment to kind of gather my thoughts on that. It's a big No question. problem. It's a big, long question. I've been thinking a lot about these, basically these no trespass laws and proposals that have been coming out since Standing Rock. Um, and also, uh, basically like the vitality of this type of activism and and why people feel compelled 
to um, to do something like trespass if if that's what they're doing, or or to to block construction, to take some of these more aggressive tactics, and and what inspires people to go to that level? What inspires people to go beyond, say, letter writing and calling your lawmaker? <clears throat> I mean, what inspires me to go beyond letter writing and calling my lawmaker is that letter writing and calling my lawmaker and even voting doesn't work. It won't stop. I can't, it won't stop these, <laughs> these horrible environmental threats that we need to stop. Um, if I could write a letter or call my lawmaker to stop construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, I certainly would, but it seems that the only way to stop or even impede construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline is to take a stance as dramatic as locking oneself to equipment. Yeah, the institutions in place that are supposed to theoretically be protecting the environment and people's health from extractive industries, such as the EPA or FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, are only going to be doing their job as far as uh, making sure that the rich keep getting richer and some it, direct action is something that will actually stop something like a pipeline and the elephant tree sits for something that did that for 932 days which is really incredible is there any chance that, that could have an impact like the company could be running out of money or investments and and maybe end up abandoning the project um, yes, I mean, the company is running out of money and investors, if they haven't fled already, are probably close to it. Um, the, the pipeline is billions of dollars over budget and um, years behind schedule. It's missing um, key permits. Um, I think at this point, um, it's been so over budget and there's so little demand for the gas it will transport that no one's really expecting to make a profit off of it anymore. Um, so there's really no reason. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> there's really no excuse for to be building the pipeline, in my opinion. There's no reason to be putting environment and um, communities at risk in the way that it is for a totally um, unnecessary and basically failed pipeline. At this point, MVP is not expecting to really be making any money off of this project. The hope of that expired long ago. At this point, they're just desperately trying to break even. How are you inspired by direct action campaigns of the past? And what would you tell to young people who are looking to get involved in climate activism going forward, especially activism around fossil fuel infrastructure? I think I would tell young people to not get fooled. Um, I would always encourage people to focus on where, what's happening, the construction sites, the point of extraction, where the bulldozers are hitting the ground. That is where what's really happening is happening. Um, elected officials um, and office workers, et cetera, all these other means one might push, you know, that's all good and great, but people, um, Politicians will make people feel like they've won or feel like their voices have been heard. And meanwhile, the destruction is still happening. So I would just encourage people to, you know, be smart and pay attention to what is happening on the ground in our environment. Is the pipeline being built or not? Is fracking continuing or not? Is the mining happening or not? Like, 
and to just really focus on the site where that's happening and trying to stop it there because, um, you know, a politician will say out the one side of their mouth that they've heard you and they've and you've won, and then they'll sign legislation for this stuff to continue with the other hand. So, you know, that would be my advice. These actions can really be taken by anyone. You don't need special skills. You don't need some sort of special, like higher education. You don't need to have any sort of really intense training in order to be fighting these extractive industries. All you need is some friends that you trust and the will to do something and you're able to be fighting pipelines. And do you see this as vital for basically saving the planet, like finding the choke points in fossil fuel production and trying to stop them uh, to prevent the overproduction or even the production of fossil fuels? I mean, do you see that as like an important mission for our generation? I mean, there's violence all around us. Violence against the planet, violence against each other. Um, yeah, violence against the planet and violence against human beings all around us. And it has to stop. It's no way to live. Uh, so uh, the thing I want to emphasize again is that uh, Mountain Valley Pipeline is trying to say that the pipeline is almost com completely done in hopes that people will have given up hope and assume it's a lost cause. However, a large section, large sections of the pipeline have not been completed yet. And after a year, over a year of not working, they are about to start working again. Uh, specifically, we know of in Giles and Craig counties. And now's the time to be fighting them when they're about to start working. Uh, one way in which to get involved in fighting the pipeline is to contact Appalachians Against Pipelines, either through the Facebook page or the email that is appalachiansagainstpipelines at protonmail.com. And you also can, I, I would really like to encourage people to take autonomous action, especially if you're someone who lives close by to the pipeline, you can talk to your friends and neighbors, uh, see what strategies might work for you and make sure that, yeah, and it's going to be a step towards making your community healthier and safer. Um, another thing that I would really like to plug is another pipeline fight that is going on up in Minnesota. There are people who have been taking some really inspiring actions against the Line 3 pipeline. One way to learn more about the Line 3 fight up in Minnesota is to check out the Facebook page, GNU Collective. That is G-I-N-I-W. And yeah, check them out and maybe consider donating because a lot of people have been locking down up there and they're going to need some bail money. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to help Truth Out publish more news and insight on the climate crisis, please take a moment to like and share this episode on social media or rate our show on your podcast platform. You can also support us by going to truthout.org donate. Thanks for listening to Climate Frontlines. Until next time, stay safe out there. And remember, where there is a movement, there is hope.